0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Richard Munchkin.
1: What the hell am I doing? I just wanted to get paid. I was willing to take a a big pay cut, but not get caught in the middle of two factions of the Chechen mob.
0: That and more. But first, send us those pitches for winter holiday stories. The good, the bad, the ugly of your December-ish memories of years past. And we're always looking for scary stories for this or next year's Halloween episode, too. All you need to know is at risk-show.com slash submissions. We'll be right back. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries... This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this, of course, is the fucking Shit Biscuits behind me now, who we chose to kick things off today because we're calling this week's episode Shit Show. And as per usual, that's a little bit figurative and a little bit literal. (laughs) And folks, with this episode, Risk turns... 15. This is the first episode of our 15th year. We cannot express how thankful we are to you all for listening and for helping us to keep the show running. We are now amongst a very very rare group of indie podcasts that have lasted this long, and we could not be more honored and more proud. And here's a little something. Stay past the end credits of this episode. We're going to feature a whole episode of an entirely different podcast. The Compulsive Storyteller with Greg Lefebvre. And I'm his guest on this episode. I'll tell you more about that later. But let's get to our first story today. It's from Richard Munchkin. You can learn more about his podcast on Instagram at Pod. And here he is now, Richard Munchkin, with a story we call Risk of Ruin. Don't decide what's
2: right for me. Don't decide what's right for me. Don't decide what's right for me. Don't
1: decide what's right for me. It's 2003 and my phone rings and I answer it's my friend Art and he says, good opportunity for you. And I was like, great, sign me up. What that means is that in a week, I'm going to strap $50,000 to my body and get on an airplane from Moscow. I grew up playing games, chess, gin rummy from the time I was three and four years old, board games, card games, anything. I loved it. And when I got into college, I was playing backgammon with my friend Jerry the Dentist. He says to me, I just came back from Las Vegas, and I have a system for beating blackjack. And I rolled my eyes, I was like, yeah, right. And he said, no, no, this is real, it's math. And he explained to me that you can actually have a mathematical advantage at blackjack by keeping track of the cards. And I thought, Well, this sounds plausible. And he recommended a book called Playing Blackjack as a Business. So I ordered the book and I read it. And math was always my strong suit in school and it made sense. The reason that blackjack is different than any other game in the casino is if you're playing roulette, what happened on the last five or 10 or a 100 spins has no bearing on the next spin. It's independent every time. But in blackjack, this hand is dependent on what happened in that deck before. So you can imagine if all the aces were taken out, it's impossible for you to get a blackjack. And a guy named Ed Thorpe published a book first describing how you could keep track of cards and have an edge over the casino. And I was like, The heavens opened and the angels began to sing. I thought, oh, my God, I could actually make money playing cards for a living. So I had a plan. I'm going to graduate college. I'm going to go to Vegas and I'm going to become a professional blackjack player. And that's what I did. I got to Las Vegas. I didn't have a lot of money. So I thought, all right, I'm going to get a job as a blackjack dealer that way. I can practice counting cards eight hours a day. And so I would practice while I dealt and then after work, I would go out and I would play, but I bet small. I didn't have a lot of money, so I was betting from maybe $2 to $10. And after a while, I met a guy who was actually a professional player. Where I was betting $2, he was betting 25. And where I would bet $10, he was betting 500 or 1,000. And he had a whole team of players with him. We bonded very quickly, and after a while he said, why aren't you playing blackjack for more money? And I said, well, I don't have a lot of bankroll. You know That's why I'm working at the job dealing. And he said, well, how about I put up $20,000 and you play for me, and we'll play and split the profits? And I said to him, you've known me a week? And you're going to give me $20,000 to go to a casino and gamble with and tell you how I did? And he reached in his coat and he pulled out two stacks of $10,000 and slid them across the table to me. And so I started playing for a lot more money. And pretty soon, I was making more money playing blackjack than I was dealing it. So I had to quit my job. The first thing that people ask me when I tell them a professional blackjack player is, isn't that illegal? And the answer is no, not in Las Vegas, not anywhere in the United States, not in any country I've ever been. And the second question is, well, isn't it dangerous? And again, for the most part, it's not. When I moved to Las Vegas in the late 70s, it was the end of the mob era. They were being forced out by the big corporations. So the worst really they could do was tell you, you're not allowed to play here anymore. Some of them were nicer about it than others. And I would get kicked out on the day shift. I would go right back in on the night shift. Eventually they get to know what you look like on site. So my hair has been every color you can imagine, long and short and permed and straight, facial hair, contact lenses, glasses. And then they get to learn your name and they put you on a blacklist and they send it around to the other casinos. So every professional I know has changed their names, some of us multiple times, and even to this day, the name on my driver's license is different than the name on my passport which can sometimes lead to interesting conversations in an airport so now in 2003 i've been a professional blackjack player for over 20 years at this point and my friend art we had been on a team together we had spent a lot of time playing in seoul korea and then the team had eventually split up and i was playing with a different group of guys but when art called he had this great opportunity. I found a really good opportunity for you. Now the thing about Blackjack is not all Blackjack games are created equal. They can have different variations of the rules. Yes, you still want to get as close to 21 without going over, and really what you're trying to do is beat the dealer, not get to the perfect 21 number. You just want your hand to be better than the dealer's. But sometimes the rules can change. The, the casinos think they're being smart or fancy and they say, well, let's do this. Let's offer them instead of blackjack playing three to two, we'll make it pay two to one. And if you get a hand of three sevens, we'll give you a bonus of three to one. So in Moscow, All these new casinos had opened. They were all competing for business. So they all came up with these crazy rules, not knowing that these blackjack games were worth three times what a game in Las Vegas would be. So if playing in Las Vegas, I could earn $500 an hour. In Moscow, I can earn $1,500 an hour. And there was no way I was going to pass that up but my wife is not happy. And as I'm packing my bag, she says to me, you know, it seems like you care more about work than you do about your family. I now had been married for 10 years. We had two small kids, but I said to my wife, look, it's just too good of an opportunity. I have to do this. It's my job. I have to go. So I strap the money to my chest and I fly off to Moscow. And Art tells me that in Moscow, don't bother with taxi cabs. He said, they take long time to get one and they cost a lot. So just, you go out to the curb and you stick your arm out in the street like you're hitchhiking. And just random people will pull over and say, where are you going? And if it's close to where they're going, they'll negotiate a price with you to take you there. And I said, doesn't that sound a little dangerous? I have all this money on me and these are just random people and the murder rate in Moscow is pretty high. And he goes, yeah, but they don't know you're carrying a lot of money. And so I trust Art because he's been there. He's been going back and forth for the last two years. So I go out to the street and I stick my arm out. And a guy pulls over and I say, can you take me to the Cherry Casino? And we negotiate a price and I jump in the car and he takes me there. It doesn't matter where I am in the world. When I walk into a casino, I feel a pump. I feel a surge of energy and my awareness goes up. I'm on alert. But in this casino, there are guards standing there with wands metal detectors like they have in the airport. And they wand me down to make sure I'm not bringing a gun into the casino. And I'm thinking, how many people are bringing their guns to the casino? But I go in and I start to play, and I'm doing well. I'm winning, and I'm one of the biggest players in the place. So the casino boss is standing there watching my table. This is normal in any casino. The big player, they're going to watch to make sure that you know, the dealer doesn't make any mistakes or that nobody's trying to cheat. And after a while, a guy comes up and he he stands too close to me. I mean, I'm the only player at this table. He's got plenty of space, but he comes up right next to me to the point where his shoulder brushes mine and he hands in a few bills to the dealer. And when he does, I notice some chips fall off my stack the stack that his hand had passed right over. Now there's an old scam in Las Vegas where people would do this and they would put something really sticky on their hand so that when they passed over, one of those chips would stick to the hand. And my chips are all worth $100 or more. So I'm looking at the guy's hand to see if he has taken one of my chips, but he quickly shoves it into his pocket. And I don't know what to do. I'm in a foreign country. So I just let it slide. Well, a little while later, the boss comes over and he's chatting me up because I'm a big player in their casino, I'm betting a lot. And I say to him, hey, look, this may be nothing. And I, I tell him what happened. He says, I'll go check the videotape. So in the casinos, they always have a camera on every table just to record what's going on in case there's any discrepancy. He comes back a while later and he says, I looked at the videotape and I saw that your chips did fall off your stack, but I couldn't tell if he took any of them. But he says, we know that player and he's not here anymore. He left. But when he comes back, we'll ask him if he took your chip. And I kind of laughed and I said, well, if he stole it, he's not going to admit it. And the guy looked at me with these cold, dead eyes and he says, oh, he will tell us. And the hair on the back of my neck stood up and I thought, oh my God, I would not want to be that guy when they drag him into the back room. And you know, what I'm doing is not illegal. I'm not cheating in any way and in the United States or any other country I've ever been in, the worst they can do is kick you out. But all of a sudden I started to think, Is that the worst they can do here? The next night, I go to a different casino. It's supposed to be in a hotel. I get to the hotel and I don't see it, but off to the right, I see a dark nightclub and there are two security guards standing there with a metal detector, but the nightclub is closed. And I go up and I say, casino, and they point through the nightclub. And I make my way through this dark nightclub, and I see a window, a porthole window with light coming through it. And I head in there, and it's a small casino. They have six or eight tables. There are only two customers in the place. And I sit down, and I start to play.
2: Now I'm sitting at a blackjack table, and I swear to God, my dealer has a taxes made are bringing complimentary drinks to the table
1: This is one of those times where my skill at Blackjack had nothing to do with anything. I just got ridiculously lucky. Have a
2: lucky day
1: I basically just won every hand for about 10 or 15 minutes. And I can see that the manager is looking kind of sick to his stomach. And I think maybe this is about all this small casino can take. So I better stop. And I pick up my chips and I go over to the cashier's cage. And he looks kind of embarrassed now. It's the manager. And he says, look, I'm sorry, we don't have enough cash to pay you. And I say, "Uh, well, how much cash do you have? And he goes back over to the table and he gets the money that I used to buy my chips out of the table and comes back and he gives me the money I had bought in with and just a couple of thousand dollars. And I'm left with 22 $1,000 chips. And he says, look, the owner will be here tomorrow. If you come back tomorrow, he'll have the cash and, and you can cash out the rest of these chips. So. I say, okay, that's what I'll do. So I I go back to my hotel and I call Art back in the States and I tell him what happened. And he says, all right, look, there's a guy there who runs the poker room at the Cosmo Hotel and he knows everything about all the casinos there and maybe he can help you with this. And his name is Jeff. So I go to the Cosmo Hotel and I find Jeff and... He says, oh yeah, that casino, man, they don't have that kind of money. I'm like, oh great, now I find this out. He says, but look, this is the way it works in Russia. The police and the court system are just worthless. They mean nothing. But every business has what is called a roof. And the roof is your local mafia boss and you pay him every month to be in business. And when there's a dispute with a business, instead of going to the police or the courts, you go to your roof. Now you're in luck because their roof is the Chechnyan mob. And my roof here at the poker room is also Chechnyan mob, but my roof is higher than their roof. So would you take 18,000 for your 22,000 in chips? I was like, absolutely, let's do it right now. I am ready. But I'm thinking to myself, Chechen Mafia, is this guy out of his mind? But that's going to be his problem. I will gladly give up four or $5,000 to not have to deal with those people. And it's Saturday night. And Monday morning, I'm supposed to be on a plane back to America. And I do not want my flight to be delayed. Well, Jeff says, no, 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 no. I have to talk to my roof about this first and see if he can settle this for you. I say, okay, great. He says, he's coming back into town tomorrow. So come back to the poker room tomorrow and we'll see if we can make this deal for 18,000. I come back the next day. I say, Jeff, where's the roof? He said, he's not here yet, but this is Natasha. And he calls over this girl, this Russian woman, and she is dark and mysterious and really sexy in a dangerous kind of way. And she has this look like she looks at you and knows exactly what you're thinking. She's the kind of woman that if you sleep with this woman, you may not live through it. So... Jeff says, I have to leave to go to another poker game, but Natasha will take care of you. And I think, well, okay, Uh, all right. And so I'm waiting and after a while, Natasha comes up to me and she goes, we go. And I say, we go where? And she says, to get your money. And I say, okay, great, great. And so we jump in a cab and we head over to this hotel where the casino is. And when I pull up, I can see through the lobby doors. There are two huge guys with a little guy in between them. And they're all wearing black suits and black turtlenecks. And we go in and now Natasha starts talking to the little guy. And he keeps nodding his head. And I look over at the security guards at the casino And these guys are pacing like caged lions. And they are not happy to see these guys here in the lobby that I'm with. And I know these must be the roof that Jeff was talking about, these Chechen mobsters. And they are lower on the totem pole than the guys I'm with. So they are actually frightened that they are here. And now Natasha says, okay, we go inside. And I say, okay. And as we start to head in, the security guards start talking in Russian to the guys I'm with. And the guys I'm with start responding, and their voices are getting louder and louder. And as I reach the metal detector, one of the security guards grabs me by the wrist and starts pulling me in. And the biggest guy with me, Igor the Giant, grabs my other wrist and starts pulling me out. And now they are shouting at each other in Russian. And while they shout back and forth, they are playing tug-of-war with me. And all I can think of is, I cannot tell my wife this happened. What the hell am I doing? I just wanted to get paid. I was willing to take a a big pay cut, but not get caught in the middle of two factions of the Chechen mob. And eventually I get loose from the security guard and we all back out into the lobby. And Natasha says to me, those men do not want our men to go inside. I said, yeah, I kind of got the picture. And she goes, you and me, we go in. If they don't have your money, don't say anything. We just come right back out. And I say, okay. And we go inside. The same manager is there and he is white and sweating. And he is shaking his head and he says, this is very bad. You should not have brought those men here. They should not be here. And I say, do you have my money? And he says, I have some. I say, how much? He says, (laughs) 1,000. I take out one chip and I give it to him. He gives me $1,000 and he says, you come back next week, and I give you another 1000 Another week, another two weeks, another 1000 And I say, look, I'm getting on a plane tomorrow for America, so unless you can pay me now, you're going to have to pay those guys in the lobby. And he says, oh, no, only you can collect this money, not them. And I say, well, you're going to have to talk to them about that. And Natasha and I go back out to the lobby. And now Natasha tells them what happened. And the little guy keeps shaking his head, no problem, no problem. Okay, give me those chips. And I said, well, uh, you know, uh, Jeff told me he would give me $18,000 for the chips. And he's like, okay, okay, you give the chips to Jeff. And I say, okay, all right, great. So Natasha and I, we jump in a cab, we head back to the Cosmos poker room. And Jeff says, okay, just give the chips to Natasha and uh, come in the morning before your flight and we'll have the 18000 for you. I was like, eh, Jeff, no, I, I, you know, I want the 18000 to give you the chips. Like, I'm not giving up the chips without the money. And he says, okay, yeah, that's that's fine. Just come in the morning and Natasha will have your money. I say, oh, Okay. I get back to my hotel and I only have about five hours before I have to go pick up that money and get to the airport and I cannot sleep. I have no chance of sleeping. I repack my bag like four times and all I'm thinking about is blackjack used to be fun. I used to love doing this, going into casinos, outsmarting them, beating them at their own game and this was not fun. Not in the least. And finally the morning comes and I head back and I go to see Natasha. And my biggest worry is that the money isn't going to be there and somehow I'm going to be stuck here in Moscow longer and have to delay my flight. But a miracle happens and Natasha is there and she has my money. And I get the money and I jump in a cab and I head to the airport and I get on a flight home. I get on the plane and my body just crashes. It's like when that adrenaline rush is over and I'm just exhausted, and then it hits me. What the hell did I just do? This is insane. This is craziness. I'm between two factions of the Chechen mob? I was getting into cars with random strangers in a town where the murder rate is worse than Chicago? I've got a wife and two young kids at home. This is nuts. And it changed. At that moment, on that flight, I was like, I'm not gonna put myself in a position where I could die. I could have walked away from this $18,000. I still would have been up over $50,000 for the trip, not counting that. So when somebody calls me about a good blackjack game in Colombia, no thanks. Iowa in the middle of winter? Eh, not my favorite, but okay. And then the drug cartels open some casinos in Mexico? Pass. <laughs> I still love the game of blackjack, and I played it for another 20 years after that. But our job is all about assessing risk, and I was no longer willing to risk my life for a good game of blackjack. So for 40 years, I've been able to travel around the world and make money playing cards. And for me, life doesn't get any better than that.
0: risk this is bob seeger behind me now and that was richard munchkin you can find his book gambling wizards conversations with the world's greatest gamblers on amazon folks one of our patreon patrons alexander kessler recently sent us this note with their donation during our struggle to keep risk running and i loved it so much alexander said i know this isn't much but I wanted to give it because risk has made me much more aware of the various hidden struggles people go through so I can support my friends and family better. I've also seen three live shows, and I'm really hoping you guys can get over this financial hump. Thank you so much, Alexander. Getting messages like this from our fans It's such a moral support. You know, it helps us keep running. And two other listeners just became Patreon patrons. They are T.W. and Matt Sperlin. We're so grateful because we really do need that support. And you, too, can become a member of our Patreon community at patreon.com slash risk. We'll be right back. We're back. Now we're going to hear a story from Katie Townsend who recorded this with us in July at the Lyric Hyperion in LA. That's our new venue out there and the shows have been going so great there. So here is Katie now with a story we call The Love Cats.
3: I had the most amazing relationship with my grandparents. They were the most loving people I ever knew. I grew up in a small village in Scotland and they lived in the house across the street. And I was at their house more than I was at my, my own house. My grand Kathleen was this very quirky maternal presence in the neighborhood. She was that lady who takes care of everyone else's kids on the block and was always getting into trouble for like handing out sweeties before dinner time. And my granddad was this ex-cop, just like a tough guy exterior, but really just this loving teddy bear that was just full of mischief and wisdom. And they were married for 60 years, and they were each other's everything. And they also made me their everything. And and I'm on the spectrum, and I've spent a lifetime trying to feel like I belong. And they gave me that. They were that for me. They made me believe in my own sense of belonging with unmatched enthusiasm and unbelievable love. And six years ago, after a long illness, my granddad deteriorated suddenly and passed away. I was absolutely crushed and shell shocked and I was living here in Los Angeles and all I wanted to do in that moment was rush home to be with my gran, to be by her side and hold her and and make everything okay. But she died of a broken heart before I could get to her. It was absolutely heart-wrenching and it felt so unfair. My safe little cocoon that I shared with them just fell apart suddenly and I didn't know what to do with myself. And after a few harrowing weeks in Scotland, dealing with the funeral and clearing out their house and all that kind of stuff, I came back to Los Angeles feeling like a shell of my former self, not yet recognizing my life without them. And in Scotland, we have a tendency to kind of hang on to arbitrary sayings that don't really mean anything, but they just make us feel good. Like, you know, when a door closes, a window opens. That's something my gram would always say to cheer us up. I thought to myself, I'm going to start looking for open windows. Maybe something will happen in my life that will take some of this pain away. And a few days after I got back, I wandered kind of ghost-like into this coffee shop in Silver Lake and I was waiting in line and I saw this, what I would describe as like a power hipster waiting in line with like wild blonde hair and like horn rim glasses and like a multicolored blazer with like the shoulder pads. Very sophisticated compared to my like disheveled, grieving self. And she accidentally dropped some coins on the floor and I bent down to pick them up and we locked eyes. And she had a little glint in her eye that kind of reminded me of like a cheeky little glimmer my grandparents would get when they were like setting up the punchline for like a dirty joke or something. There was just a little something. She left the coffee shop and um, walked down the street and I followed her and walked down the street. And then I randomly went into another shop, just picked a shop at random and went in and there she was again, the same woman. And suddenly my brain is like darting to connect dots that probably aren't there. And I'm thinking, huh maybe this is my open window, maybe this woman is meant to haphazardly stumble into my life like something from a bad lesbian rom-com and make everything better. And um, we chatted and we agreed to get a drink and her name was Emily. She was this very quirky woodworker, that's what she did for a living, which I just thought was so cool. And uh, she confided in me that she was also grieving, she'd recently lost her baby kitten and had gone on like a mad kitten binging spree and gone out and adopted three kittens in place of the one she'd lost, which I thought was kind of weird. (laughs) I thought that's a red flag, but I'm a big cat lover. So I was kind of like, I thought also thought it was endearing. And um, when we left the bar after drinks, I kind of was laser focused on these cats, right? Like I'm a catless cat lover and I thought, God, there's nothing more I'd love right now than to go back to this woman's house. And cuddle her kittens and so I I asked her you've no ulterior motive I really did want to cuddle the cats and she agreed we arrive at her Echo Park apartment and she opens the door and my senses are suddenly clobbered with the overwhelming unmistakable stench of cat shit (laughs) woof slaps me in the face as someone who is easily disgusted by horrible smells, I like gagged instantly and I was like, oh god, what am I gonna do? And I reluctantly followed her over the threshold into this dark, stenchy lair. And the apartment was like a sauna, it was really dingy and cramped, and um I was surrounded by all dark everything, like dark wooden floors, dark wooden tables, chairs, like wooden ornaments, clearly all woodworked by hand, brown vintage curtains hanging from the window. And I noticed that there's this peculiar box sitting on the coffee table. And as I get closer, I realize it's like a, like a handmade coffin, like a mini coffin. And suddenly I'm like, is her dead kitten in here? Is that what the smell is? (laughs) They're like a dead animal in this apartment. And everything in me is like bellowing at me to like bolt, like get out of here. So I, I turn around to tell this woman, look, let's just call it a night, I'm gonna go home. To find her standing completely naked in the middle of the apartment in like a stance, like she's about to like chop down a tree or something.
2: <laughs>
3: and as I'm processing her nakedness, I'm starting to think, this woman might want to sleep with me. And suddenly it feels like shamefully rude not to. Like I feel, I feel like cornered and compelled, like I'm, like I'm trapped in some escape room and the only way out is to fuck this random hipster as quickly and efficiently as possible. So I like chase her into the bedroom, like tearing off my clothes. But as we get into the bedroom, the stench thickens. Like, it's really disgusting now. And I can tell that it's coming from the ensuite bathroom that's, that's attached to the bedroom. And I hear the meows of distressed kittens. And suddenly they all come spilling out and I'm like tripping over these baby cats and her and I kind of like clamber clumsily onto the bed and we start kissing. But her breath is indistinguishable from the cat diarrhea. Like I can taste it in the back of my throat and there's like a scatters of like clumps of like wet cat litter all over the bed that seem to like lodge themselves into like every crevice and I'm still kind of thinking about this micro cat coffin that's feet away which is somehow a memorial to the fact that my grandparents were being lowered into the ground days earlier and I'm suddenly getting bombarded with all these morbidly intrusive thoughts and I suddenly realise that these kittens are jumping all over my naked body and I start, like, picking them off like hairy tarantulas and, like, flicking them away. But they keep coming back relentlessly taunting me like a -a a whack-a-cat-with-a-mallet-thing-at-the-fairground. Three cats seemingly become dozens, and the rocking motion of our bodies together is making me feel so queasy. Like, the heat and the movement and the, oh. And if I can feel vomit rising in the back of my throat, ready to detonate any unexpectedly firm thrust. And, and the door is ajar in the bedroom. I can see the front door from where we are. The exit is right there. Why am I holding myself hostage in this putrid, shite-ridden inferno? And... At this point, Emily and I are kind of just like a tangled ball of limbs, just like a ball of human funk in some unbecoming pretzel-like position. And the stench is so pervasive that my eyes start watering and tears start falling onto Emily's naked body. And she leans in and says, Wow, you're such an emotional lover. (laughs) But I I can't see anything. And I'm like, is that a foot here? Like, what is happening? Like, I'm just, everything's so, like, stinky and gross and I'm, like, fumbling and I feel like I'm going to pass out from the heat. Emily is no longer a person. She's just a blob of cat shit with googly eyes. (laughs) And as I'm becoming more overwhelmed, I start to, like, gently cry to myself. Do you know when you you start crying but you're also holding it in and it kind of comes out like a staccato coughing? Like a... (sighs) It starts like that and then suddenly that escalates to sort of the mooing of a disgruntled cow being milked like "Mm, mm, mm," and like something is just building inside of me and before I know it this has escalated to like this guttural primal Tarzan like screaming of a dying animal as waves of grief just come up out of nowhere and I scream It sounded sexier than that (laughs) And in the frenzy of it all, I start riding this woman like a bucking bronco at a birthday party. It's just very messy and uncoordinated. I can't tell if she's in an aroused stupor or just like totally traumatised. But it all builds to like a chaotic crescendo of like moaning and meowing and crying and screaming and ice cream, and she screams and the cat screams. And it all comes to an abrupt and unremarkable end followed by a very awkward and ceremonial like silence. And I don't know what to do. So I just start sobbing pathetically and 29 years of loving my grandparents just pours out over the sheets and the kittens come up and like paw at my tears, but I like flick them away. And um, Emily at this point is just playing dead. Like she's clearly mortified and doesn't say anything. And we just lie opposite ends of the bed facing away from each other, two strangers. And I just sort of fall asleep and succumb to the heat and the stench. And hours later, light trickles through the window and it sparks an internal shift within me. The furniture in the apartment actually looks pretty nice in the morning light. It's actually really pretty. And And I take this opportunity to slip out of the apartment and into the sun. And when I get home to my own apartment, it smells like so fresh and so clean like flowers and soapy linens, and I open all the windows and I just lie on my bed, cocooned against a cool breeze. And I remember what it felt like to be in my grandparents' arms. And the quietest, purest grief I've ever felt just shivers through my body. And I'm uncertain about pretty much everything in that moment. But all I know is that I love my grandparents. And I love that my apartment doesn't smell like cat shit. (laughs) Thank you.
2: không không bỏ
0: Risk. This is the Kiffness and Lonely Cat behind me now. The Kiffness is a fella who takes recordings of cats, you know, being weird, <laughs> and, and makes songs out of them. And we just heard from Katie Townsend, who you can find on Instagram at The Cheeky Scott. Folks, we have a treat for you After the end credits of the episode today, as I mentioned at the top, there are two more stories waiting for you. Technically, it's a whole episode of another podcast called The Compulsive Storyteller with Greg Lefebvre. Greg had me on his podcast and asked me to tell a story in conversation with him. And then in our conversation, it turned out he had a story of his own, with all sorts of uncanny parallels to mine. So you'll hear a couple stories and get a taste of what the Compulsive Storyteller podcast is all about. That's after the end credits today. And folks, if you're near the Twin Cities, don't miss Asterisk, a true storytelling show to benefit risk. On October 12th at Bryant Lake Bowl and Theater, it's hosted by TikTok star Zerman Zane, who is also known as Risk favorite Ernest Anfin. And then Risk is in LA at the Lyric Hyperion on October 17th. And tickets for both the Asterisk Show in Minneapolis and the LA Risk Show at risk show.com slash live and tickets for the tour that my sketch comedy troupe the state is doing starting in october can be found at the-state.com new york boston la san francisco dc and more dates are coming all of that is at the-state.com we'll be right back Now, coming up on Thursday, Brenda Gonzalez and Ana Sheila Victorino of the podcast Tamarindo will be guest hosting our fourth Hispanic Lives episode, but that's Thursday. And folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
4: Greg Lefebvre, the creator and host of the Compulsive Storyteller podcast. Today we're introducing a new segment on the show called Pass the Mic. Once or twice a month, we'll invite a talented guest with an interesting story to join us on the podcast to tell their story or to chat with me about storytelling. I'm excited to introduce today's guest, Kevin Allison. Kevin is the creator and host of The Risk podcast, where people tell true stories they never thought they dared to share since 2009. Kevin is also a member of the legendary sketch comedy troupe The State, known for the hit show on MTV in the 90s and reuniting for a tour this coming fall. And now, Kevin Allison.
0: Okay, ready to go? Well, there was a place called Luna Lounge in the lower east side of manhattan that in 1996 was like the mecca of alternative comedy it was so popular there it was always jam-packed and and all these people that you know were pretty big names back then but now are huge names like uh dave Chappelle and louis ck sarah silverman janine garofalo all these people were always there.
4: I live on the Lower East Side. What was the physical place like? Was it a basement? Or was-
0: It was. It, it was a basement between Houston and Stanton on Ludlow. So it was pretty near Katz's Deli right there.
4: I live on uh, Houston and uh, Christie now, so I'm still a stone's throw away okay so it sounds like a great place
0: and there was a night in 1996 when it was at the height of its popularity when i jumped up on that stage and i thought oh my gosh this is kind of a make it or break it moment because there's all these important people here there were also industry people there you know uh, agents and managers and i was prepared to do a comedy monologue by myself for the first time and i thought oh my gosh i really have to nail this and the thing was the reason it was so nerve-wracking is because my sketch comedy group had just broken up i had burst into comedy after graduating from nyu and had immediately gotten on tv my sketch comedy group the state was so successful with our career at nyu that almost immediately upon graduating we had our own tv show for a few years wow wow that's amazing but then we broke up and now i was like oh my god i'm all alone now i i have to be On stage with no one there to catch me if I fall because that's the secret of sketch comedy groups improv comedy all that sort of team sort of comedy is easier in so many ways because if you drop the ball someone else can pick it up or make a joke about it or
4: absolutely
0: yeah so I was a nervous wreck
4: emotionally was it a serious breakup
0: Yes, it was a bit like the Beatles, actually, you know, where it was like a year and a half or so of are we breaking up or aren't we breaking up and and should we keep trying to stay together? It was because we had so many contractual problems. We were trying to do something first at maybe Comedy Central and then something at maybe Disney and... Everything was just so confusing and taking so long that everyone was starting to starve and and you know started to do things behind one another's back. So it, it just became too messy. But I'll tell you one thing: a lot of the other members of the state had gotten up at Luna Lounge and made a huge impression on people. So I was like, well, now it's my time, you know? And I I got up on that stage and I had prepared a monologue where the whole joke was i present myself as if i'm charles manson it's a character monologue right then i break and start laughing and and say to the audience i'm not charles manson do i look like charles come on and It turns out in the monologue, I'm kind of a schizophrenic guy, (laughs) like I keep bouncing back and forth. Maybe I'm Manson. Maybe I'm a lunatic. Well, (laughs) Manson himself was a bit of a lunatic, but it's all over the place. So I was so nervous about all of this that I had spent the prior three days. I, I thought to myself, here's what you do when you have self-esteem problems social anxiety problems what's a surefire way to feel more confident about performing just memorize the heck out of everything yeah that's one way yeah so i had written this like nine paragraph long comedy character monologue and i had walked up and down the whole length of manhattan for the past couple of days just listening to that thing on my sony walkman with Mega bass <laughs> just hearing the monologue over and over and over and over and i thought i know every word of this so well that i'll be fine well i'll tell you i got to the end of the first paragraph
4: as manson
0: as manson right. or is he and completely forgot the entire monologue i'm staring out at this room it is packed there's people crawling up the walls practically it's so packed and another thing that was crazy about it it's the 90s so it was actually kind of a punk rock dive bar they didn't even have seats it was it was such a fire hazard people were sitting like You know with their legs crossed on the floor it was just a mess well i thought to myself okay i'm this is the worst nightmare i'm staring out at all these blank faces who are like what's he doing next and i thought okay i cannot for the life of me remember what comes next in this monologue i'll just go back to the beginning (laughs) <laughs> oh dear! Because yeah. I, in in a split second, I was thinking, well, you know, if I start from the beginning again, uh, then I'll I'll get to this point, and that time, I'll probably re- remember where I'm at. So I start over, and I'm like, you know, hey everyone, I'm Charles Manson. No, I'm not. And and everyone was like, what? Now this is like a, a Beckett play or something, you know, like a surrealist or what? What? What's going on here? Well, sure enough, I get to the very same final word of that first paragraph and I go completely blank again, Mm. just cannot remember what comes next. So I was really like a deer in the headlights, you know, I actually, I kind of felt like I was in water or something like that you know like like in a like like when they throw the ball at the the guy in the dunking booth and it hits yeah 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 yeah. because i just couldn't think what to say to everybody and i i just was it was just such a moment of panic really totally so what i did was i turned to the host who was jeff ross and I said to him, I can't do this. And I started to try to leave. <laughs> now, I was trying to just say it to him, but kind of forgot, oh, you're right near this microphone. So everyone heard me say, I can't do this. And in order to leave, I had to, there were there were no aisles. You had to
4: go through the crowd.
0: Yeah. I had to be... Stepping over like a guy walking through a field of yeah. cacti. <laughs> all the people and they thought, oh, this is this is alternative comedy. This is like an Andy Kaufman routine. Like he's saying he can't do it. Like, he, you know, like, oh, we get it. We get it now. So they start yelling out. No, you can do it. Do it. Do oh, nice. it! Nice. Do nice. it! And then finally, I get to this point where it's getting so hard to get out of there. I'm saying to people, "No, I can't do this." <laughs> and finally, someone grabs one of my feet, and I fall into the crowd. So
4: you were up they... on a on a stage?
0: No, no, no. I was I was climbing over people out there in the audience. Got you. Someone grabs one of my feet and I fall into them and they start crowd surfing me because that was a huge thing in the 90s.
4: They crowd surfed you back up to the stage?
0: They absolutely did. And it was so awkward because, you know, everyone's only three feet. Everyone was seated cross-legged on the ground. So there was just I was three feet off the ground being bobbled up back onto the stage. Right. So they kind of. Surfed me back up there and kind of belched me back up, up onto that stage. And everyone was cheering. And I'll tell you, something happened in that moment. I, I realized I was like, I am not the dominant partner in this power relationship. <laughs> <laughs> they want me to do this goddamn monologue and they think I can.
4: And they've got your back, definitely. Yeah, Literally.
0: Right, exactly. They they believe, they believe I can do it. And something about that made me be able to remember the rest of the monologue perfectly. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. I picked it back up and did it and it went over huge. It was a huge success. Great story. Yeah. Oh my God. I'll tell you there was a guy from i think it was the abrams agency i don't know if the talent agency is still around but but he was a big important like at least like commercials and indie films sort of agent and he said to me afterwards he was like you knocked it out of the park you were the best act at the show tonight you stole the show and it was so funny I didn't have enough, like, I don't know, savvy to like play it off. I I was just honest with him. I was like, oh, you don't understand. I literally was trying to flee the theater at that point. And he said to me, oh, well, then you survived the so-called actor's nightmare you went through the worst that it can possibly be. So you can look at that as, hey, I lived through that, so I can live through anything as an actor. And you know what? I didn't take that in at that moment. I didn't really soak that message in because I continued to kind of be plagued by stage fright and social anxiety. But years and years and years later, yep when i was about to turn 40 i started telling true stories on stage mm-hmm. and there was a big difference to me somehow psychologically telling true stories like this one
4: well they're easy to remember too
0: because they happen to you exactly and you do feel much more like you're in a conversation right right, right. where you can literally say to someone oh wait wait I mean, what was I just saying? You know what I mean? Like, like, if you, if you blank out, you can be like, wait, Mm -hmm. what, okay. Let me, you know, you, you can ask for help.
4: And that's a great thing to believe, you know, very helpful. Yeah.
0: So totally. Yeah. The audience is ultimately on your side.
4: (laughs) So when I was young man, maybe I started to play the violin at age six. Uh huh. And by the time I was like 11 or 12, I had people thought i was some kind of a prodigy which i don't think i was but and my teacher who was the conductor of the local symphony he got a gig for me to play my first recital in a in a, in a hall wow and i was i re- rehearsed with a with a pianist for like 3 months and the closer it got one of the, one of the symptoms of stage fright is you get tunnel vision and then you c- can't even see and every time i thought about it i just got the shakes I almost blacked out and I was just didn't want to do it. And didn't wow. want to do it. And I was just completely mortified. I told a friend of mine and he said to me, his father was a optometrist. He says, you know what? I said, maybe I could wear a sleeping mask. It was an idea. If I can't see the audience, maybe I won't be afraid. Which is I'll be darned. Totally foolhardy. So he said, I, I know what you can do better than that. I, have, I can get some drops to dilate your pupils and then you'll be fine. Wow. So that seemed like a solution
0: <laughs> so
4: so that i had the drops and the a, the afternoon before the plus i had to i had several things i had to do i had a new jacket my parents bought me i had a if you play the violin and your hand gets sweats it sticks to the neck of the violin that's bad so in my left pocket i had a uh, envelope of talcum powder and then i also thought because my pupils were dilated i was very sensitive to light. i had a pair of sunglasses in, in one of my pockets. Aww. And so I was ready to go. And also my parents said I had a new shirt, but they'd cinched it up in the back. So there was, I was just held together with like, you know, <laughs> bubble gum. So when it came time, they introduced me and I didn't come out because I was just completely frozen and my penis was next to me. And I peeked out and then I stuck my head out from behind the curtain and I could see sort of a pointillist painting of an audience because mm-hmm. I couldn't see at mm-hmm. all. And and then I pulled my head back in again and everybody laughed. <laughs> and, then, and then just like you, everybody said, come out, come out, come really? out. Yeah, really, really? And, so, and also my sisters, I heard them chortle first of all because they kind of love this. They were my younger sisters. So finally I, I came through the curtain and I couldn't see a thing. I could see the piano was this big black blob. Oh so I my felt my God. way along the back curtain. I was holding the curtain. I had to make a sort of a leap to the piano and the pianist was sitting on on her bench and she had to jump aside. Then I held on, then I felt my <laughs> way around the piano to the front of the piano. Um, and oh then my um, God. I started to play. She started to play and then I came in and uh-huh. we, had, we had made a deal that if you if you forget your line, so to speak, you go back to the beginning. But uh-huh. we never d- discussed the beginning of that section of what we were doing. I was playing with Zeitz's violin concerto with piano. so when when I forgot what I was doing very quickly, but I was already fa- past the first section, I went back to the beginning of the first section. She went back to the beginning of the whole thing. so oh we didn't God. we didn't make it. So then she stopped, I started, I stopped, she started, which is much like you. And then um, at a certain point, I put my hand in my pocket and I smeared powder all over my blue jacket. Oh, um, and, and I then I put my sunglasses on and then the crowd loved it. The crowd was chanting again, because I think maybe they thought it was an act because I literally have, so now I have my sunglasses on. And then I, I came to a point where like you i completely panicked and came to a frozen stop and decided to flee the stage except i did flee the stage Uh i ran across the stage into the curtain out into the alleyway behind the stage and hid behind a dumpster oh my god and that was the end of my my recital my sister came out behind the thing and found me and my parents took me out for ice cream afterwards which i was not even slightly interested in because somebody might have seen me at the recital um Uh so that was the sort of the beginning and end of my violin career that is amazing but there's a lot of an incredible number of parallels to you when you were completely came to a standstill did you get tunnel vision
0: yeah 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 that was you're exactly right a sort of a thing where Almost like, like I don't know, in a Hitchcock sort of movie where, uh, or like in Vertigo, where, yeah, like uh, you, you become a little bit hypnotized and can't quite, yeah.
4: Well, this has been a real treat.
0: Yes, it was very funny. It was awesome that we had such similar stories.
4: Say a word again about, so your podcast is called Risk, and just give us a, a little riff about it one more time to stay in people's heads
0: risk is the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share in public so it's very uncensored you know very vulnerable radical honesty some of the stories are funny some are terrifying Mm -hmm. or or kinky Mm -hmm. or whatever Uh, you know uh, a lot of a lot of it you you could not hear on like national public radio because it's uh it's a little on the more uncensored side We've been doing it for 14 years and yeah it's wow. it's it's quite popular but and, and it's really something to be doing it that long you know Oh I was going to say um the state my sketch comedy group that I mentioned breaking up with in that story right we're actually reuniting this oh nice yeah we're doing a show in denver on august 30th and then probably a whole tour throughout september and some of october
4: Oh, fantastic but are you going to get to new york
0: yes yeah we're supposed to be at the palladium i'm not exactly sure the dates yet but yeah be super fun
4: great no I'll I'll be I'll be in the front row yeah so
0: (laughs) fabulous
4: well listen Kevin thanks so much for coming on share the mic I really appreciate it
0: oh thank you
4: and good luck with your tour
0: thanks so much
4: okay bye-bye are you ready to tell your own story on the compulsive storyteller we're launching a new segment of guest storytelling and we want to hear your stories Email a voice recording to hello at thecompulsivestoryteller.com. I'll play selected stories on upcoming episodes. Try to be as clear as possible in your recording and we reserve the right to lightly edit them for length and clarity. Leave your name or contact information in your voicemail or email and let us know if you'd like the story to be anonymous. I can't wait to hear from you. The Compulsive Storyteller is now co-produced by Greg Lefebvre and Fadia Monserath, who's also arranged the music and created the special effects. Emily Ramon does design, research, editing, and marketing. Peter Kakoma has made our theme music and for many seasons co-produced the show with me. If you enjoyed this week's episode, let us know. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at The Compulsive Storyteller, and we'd love to hear from you. This podcast is independently produced, so we really appreciate all your help and support. Share the show with your friends, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave a review. You can also check out our website, thecompulsivestoryteller.com, for more information. Thanks for listening, and if you didn't like this one, the next one will be another story.